The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Okay. So we've talked about this idea of of walls or tightnesses or mental blockages or habits. Um, remember, we had kind of a range. And we may be getting the sense that, um, you know, we need to kind of work with each one. And it's it's kind of true. It's a little bit like what I described before, where we have to slowly dissolve them, and then every now and then we get the fun of cutting them. Um, but what we really want to do is stop the tendency to build the walls, right? Wouldn't that be more powerful? Um, if we were, say, working on breaking down a wall, but behind our back we were building three more, that's, that's not a, a winning um, ratio. So it's probably an impossible project to individually wipe out every wall that you have in your mind. Probably. But fortunately, the techniques that we're doing today undermine them actually at a more fundamental level. And even better, they weaken the tendency to build them at all. So that's a good thing. You don't have to believe this, um, but I'm sharing from my own experience. So you may have noticed by now (laughs) that many of the challenges that we have are around ourself in some way. You know, it's something that we're some idea of who we are or who we need to be or some way that we think we need to relate to um, to people or to the world. So this is the issue that we're approaching from a variety of angles today, is this idea that somewhere we have this this knot of our of ourself and who it is that we think we need to be. And we've built various walls of protection around that and these end up actually taking a lot of our energy and um, bringing a feeling of stress. So there's this nice quote from the um, Exposition of the Elements Sutta that says, when the tides of conceiving no longer sweep over one, she is called a sage at peace. By overcoming all conceivings, one is called a sage at peace. The sage at peace is not born, does not age, does not die. She is not shaken and does not yearn. So there's this sense that something about how we're conceiving, how it is that we're perceiving, creating, imagining, viewing things, that um, is very related to the difficulties that we're experiencing And so a lot of what we're learning through this process is how to not create in those same ways. How to, um, at at first at least, just have flexibility in how we see things. And then we start to see, oh, things can be a little bit more fluid, they can be a little bit more open. And then eventually we learn that certain ways of seeing always are creating a problem. And we just vow not to do those anymore. And once we've seen that a certain way of thinking, we've just never seen it produce anything good, we can choose, again, maybe with a longer process, and may not be able to choose it just instantly, but we can at least decide, this one just doesn't work. This one always 
um, has this tendency to create suffering or stress. I'm not going to do that anymore, or may that not be done anymore. Maybe we frame it in a non-personal aspiration. And so in this way, we slowly uh, diminish the ways in which we're creating walls. And this contributes a lot to our increasing sense of peace as we practice for longer There's a lot of layers to go through in the mind. So, you know, there's always the possibility that things will come up and we'll still, we'll always be, you know, working with the next layer. But at least we cannot be producing a lot more in the process of doing that. So I want to talk just a bit about refuge and support. And then we'll have a chance to um, do another little small group, set of small group discussion. So in our regular life, our resources tend to be self-based objects. So our job, for example, or our body, or our close relationships, um, our status, these sorts of things. It's not that you're not going to have these things. We're living a life. We have various elements that constitute it. But the question is whether we're relying on these as resources, fundamental resources to support us. And most of us, you may think, oh, I don't, you know, I haven't taken refuge in anything. Yes, you have. You've taken refuge in something. (laughs) Um, And we know that these things I just named, things like body, job, health, relationships, status, these can change fairly quickly, can't they? Um, And fairly fundamentally. You know, it might be a change that just can't can't be unchanged, you know. Certainly aging is a one-way process. So we, we come to understand, sometimes abruptly and sometimes slowly over time, that we need more reliable resources. Um, these ones that, we've, that we naturally have through our everyday life, they're fine enough while they're here, but they're not reliable enough to be the basis for spiritual work. They're just not robust enough. So we have to then find something else. And I hinted at it and you know, we talked about basing ourselves on our sense of goodness in doing our practice. But there are also um, specific refuges that are offered to us. And I'll, uh, we each need to clarify what each of them means to us. So I'm not giving you a definition that you need to believe or take on, but a suggestion So the reliable refuges are said to be the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And, you know, what do those mean? It's up to us, but for some, um, the Buddha could be the historical Buddha. We could just be so inspired that there was a regular guy in India who did this, that we feel like, hey, if a regular guy in a pre-industrial society can do this, I could do. You know, he was a human, I'm a human. Or... um, we could see the Buddha more figuratively as our awareness, our potential for awakening, uh, the strength of our, of our mind. We're developing, uh, there's no difference between the mind of the Buddha and our mind except some development. And so we have, you know, we have that potential and we can be inspired, we can be deeply inspired by the potential of every human mind to awaken. It's really possible. The Dharma um, consists of, again, many things. We can find the one that moves our heart the most. The teachings of the Buddha 
so beautiful. You know, I don't know if suttas are a thing, but the, the reading of the suttas can be inspiring, or the hearing of Dharma talks, reading Dharma books, um, the practices that are offered, so meditation. All of you are somewhat attracted to meditation if you did as much as we did today. So the the peace, the ease that can come through meditation, even if it's a quote-unquote difficult meditation where we were kind of agitated, somehow we knew that we know that that's valuable, right? There was something about showing up on the cushion, taking that posture. So this can actually be used as a resource. You know, the the um, teachings and the practices of the Dharma. More broadly, the Dharma refers to the natural laws of the universe, of the way things operate. We can take great um, comfort and refuge in the understanding that when we do things skillfully, they have happy results. <laughs> and when we do things that break the precepts, they bring painful results. That's actually a natural law of the universe. That that's how things operate. You can't have, you can't avoid having some kind of a painful result from breaking the precepts or doing something unskillful. But the converse is we can't avoid having some kind of happy or pleasant result every time we do something good. So that can, again, be a wonderful basis. This is the basis of understanding karma. Um, We can also bring in our understanding of the Four Noble Truths as a foundation. We understand that suffering has a cause or has a condition for it. And so if we were able to remove that, it would cease. And the more we see various kinds of suffering and clinging cease in our life, even small ones, big ones, partial ones, they give us more and more reliance on the the truth of the practices. So this can be a, a basis that's good enough to support spiritual work. And then also the Sangha, which refers to those who are walking the path. Um, It can be members of this Sangha, people in this room, for example, or it could be teachers, um, it could be monastics. Some people prefer the monastic Sangha. Most fundamentally, uh, the word Sangha can refer to the noble Sangha, people who have had some understanding of the teachings and who are therefore speaking from experience when they talk about... um, the validity of the path. So in general, we're going to need other people to help us, and that's represented in the in the Sangha. So the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha are considered to be uh, the fundamental things that, that it's good enough for us to stand on to do this work. This is from the Dhammapada. People threatened by fear go to many refuges, to mountains, forests, parks, trees, and shrines. None of these is a secure refuge. None is a supreme refuge. Not by going to such a refuge is one released from all suffering. But when someone going for refuge to Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha sees with right insight the four noble truths, suffering, the arising of suffering, the overcoming of suffering, and the eightfold path leading to the end of all suffering, then this is the secure refuge. This is the supreme refuge. By going to such a refuge, one is released from all suffering. So it's interesting. There's actually embedded in there two different levels of refuge. So it says, when one who goes for refuge in Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, then sees the truth of the Four Noble Truths, that's really the secure refuge. So they say that we start with Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, and that is our basis for doing the practice. 
And then what we discover is the truth of the Four Noble Truths, including the truth of, of cessation, of awakening. And that becomes the, the reliable refuge. I'll offer a few more teachings on the Noble Truths um, at the end, but this would be an opportunity for us to, first of all, stand up and stretch for a couple minutes, and then I want you guys to have a chance to share among yourselves, so we'll do some small groups also. So please take a moment to stretch, and then sit down when you're ready. Okay, so um, again, we'll do the first one, the first question where... Each person can just speak for a couple of minutes and the other's job is to to listen and take in what they're saying. And the, the prompt is, share a pattern of thought or behavior that you have noticed in your mind recently. It doesn't have to be your heaviest. So like an example would be when Andrea said that she might say that she'd noticed this thought, you're no good. So that's a pattern. Um, and then the the question is, to what degree have you seen through it? You know, in what ways do you see this as not real? And so, yeah, just talk about that. Um, the person with the longest hair can go first. <laughs> so share a pattern of thought or behavior. could be something you do, like making your coffee in the morning, that you've noticed in your mind recently. And to what degree have you seen through it? And then the the second question is, and again, will each person will have a chance to speak. Um, what might you like to do differently in your life to support changing this pattern? And what would support you in being able to make such a change? You know, what would be a reliable support for that? So the same order of people. And the first person can go ahead. What might you like to do differently in your life to support changing this pattern? And what will support you in doing this? Great. So we can come back into the, into the large group. You can thank your group members. <laughs> All right, and so again, there's an opportunity to uh, offer anything into the larger group of your wisdom. In particular, I didn't get to hear what you guys said, and I'm certainly curious. It sounded like you had some uh, good ideas there. Anything anyone would like to share? Yeah, can we get a microphone to... So my question is... Oh, you're not going to share your wisdom? (laughs) Sorry. Um, So, today's teaching was very helpful, so thank you. One question that I had was that I mentioned about some fear, negative thoughts rising very recently a lot. What I have been doing and found very helpful was that when I looked at the fear, whenever it rises... Uh, arises, then I looked at the fear directly to the mm-hmm. eyes and then tell the tell that no, you sit down, you go away. Mm. I know you're coming, I'm going to push you down, I'm going to go over you. 
Uh, that part, I'm still trying to understand what we talked about. I totally understand, like rock versus water, and focusing on the flowing things and going, be, becoming amoeba, and go into the small things to be more malleable. And I'm, I, it, I'm trying to connect those two seemingly different kind of encounters and experiences too. So I don't know if it makes sense. So you're looking for a, a, a way to understand the method that you've been doing intuitively, which is to look at it and... Yeah. and I, how does it relate to uh-huh. today's teaching? Is there something that I can connect? It's most related to the last one, to the um, seeing through. Remember I said the one thing that fear has no power against is non-reactivity. And so if you look... One thing I, I noticed, though, is that there might have been a little bit of aversion in pushing down the fear, right? And it can, you know, that's fear is a negative emotion, and so our tendency is to be averse to it naturally. So I would just be a little bit careful about um, suppressing it in some way through that aversion. Um, I think what you're doing is okay to just see it and not be not be intimidated by it. That's very powerful, actually. Um, my guess is that that will have a transformative effect if you keep doing that. Um, these other techniques kind of work from different angles, and they're all good also. Does that help a little bit to fit it in? It does. Uh, yeah. Because uh, for me, I had to win over that feeling. So uh, you're right, in a way, I was really pushing it down and suppressing yeah. it. Yeah, just be careful. You might be a little bit afraid of the, of your fear. So turn around and look at how you're feeling about that fear. Is it really... Yeah. You're reminding me of a story from the Tibetan tradition of Milarepa and the demons that he meets in his cave. Um, you know, Milarepa was a bodhisattva in the Tibetan tradition, a great meditation master. And he... One of the stories about him is that when he was meditating in the cave, these monsters came. Or maybe he came upon a cave that had monsters. I forget the setup. But, of course, it's representative of the issues in our mind. And so I think he got the monsters to go away by a combination of stuff. Um, One of them is that he was totally kind and accepting and served them tea. And, you know, maybe like one or two of them disappeared with that. Another one, he was um, very fierce and clear, and he said, I don't believe in you, and whatever, and maybe one more disappeared. And I I forget exactly the different techniques that were offered, but the last one was that he, um, you know, the last monster just didn't go away with any of those possibilities. And so he climbed into his mouth and just lay down and surrendered himself, and then the monster disappeared. That's the one a lot of us aren't so willing to do. Um, and the other ones I would try first. But this is not so much that you need to memorize the story about the monsters, but just that it's well known in each tradition that we need to have a variety of tools often for working with things, and we can choose them somewhat intuitively, as as has been referred to today. Yeah. Any other wisdom to share? Yeah. Oh, but right behind you, there's a. Yeah. I don't know. Does the light go on? If you press the button on the. It's on the round part. There you go. 
I was saying it can often engage in the same behavior for very different reasons and it could be very helpful to look at my motivation mm-hmm. before I'm doing something or as I'm doing it. Yeah. Do you have a particular example or that's a lot of wisdom right there? I'll go I'll go and I'll read or I'll go and I'll play the piano and sometimes it's to distract myself. Oh, and some can you hear? Okay. Sometimes I'll go to read or or I'll go to play piano or something and it's just to do that and that's good. And that's fine, but sometimes I'm doing it to distract myself from something else. Right. So this is this is an uh, important point is that one more thing we can do is check out what it is that we're that is prompting us to do that pattern. That's one of the ways to work with it. Um so in case people couldn't hear, he said that sometimes he'll go to play the piano, for example, and sometimes it's just to do it, but sometimes it's to distract himself in some way. And so it's also important, yeah, to know, because this quality of action of being skillful or unskillful has partly to do with the motivation behind it. And so if our motivation is coming from, from wanting or from greed, it's said, greed or hatred or delusion, then the results just aren't going to be that good. And, or if it's coming from non-greed, non-hatred or non-delusion, then the results will be better. And we, it may take a little bit of sleuthing to be sure. Usually many of our motives are a little bit mixed, right? And so to, to make sure that we're emphasizing more the, the motivations that are based on the wholesome roots, non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion. Yeah. So then um, I wanted to try to kind of summarize and wrap up a bit of what we've talked about in terms of the Four Noble Truths. um, We looked at these tensions in our body or our mind and the, the movement is generally to open to them or to at least acknowledge them. One of the meditations I know we didn't turn toward it specifically but the other ones we were willing to turn toward. And even in the one where we were looking at other things, it was because we were aware that there was this, maybe this tension here. So it was included kind of in a uh, peripheral sense. So the first noble truth encourages us to open to our suffering, to really be willing to see that, yeah, there's struggle, there's stress uh, going on in my life. That's, That's part of my life. But it's not a, in a depressing way or a negative way. It's because we're going to look for the solution. You can't look for the solution to something that you're not willing to look at. So then the, the second noble truth, um, we start to see um, how much energy and effort it takes that to, to cling and to crave. We see that there's this grasping somehow. And uh, when these things release or dissolve, it may happen over a period of time, but certainly in the ones where it's a little bit more rapid, we feel that there's an energy release that goes with that. There's a sense of, ah, you know, I've been gripping this fist for 15 years and finally I got to open it. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a feeling like that. And that, um, that's, a sen- you know, that's the understanding that we've let go. But the, we, we have to understand that the, you know, we've grasped because we thought we were protecting something. We thought it would be a good idea <laughs> to cling to this or to crave this, but that there's actually a cost to doing that. 
that's a lot of what the second noble truth tells us, is we start seeing that the cost-benefit is not so good, <laughs> that what we thought was going to be a solution to the suffering is the grasping on. Um, you know, to be specific, we do things like distract ourselves with the piano's not too bad, but the internet or, you know, more seriously, uh, drinking or drugs, you know, other things that are truly harmful that we're doing because we're trying to escape the suffering. We're not looking at it. And so these things that we've done are actually have a cost to them. And once we see that there is some relationship between um, our actions and the suffering in our life, then we get excited. That's actually the good news. Then we can start working to not do the things that are causing the stress. And so the... But the, to understand how to do that, we need the third noble truth, was that we need some kind of a taste of letting go, even if it's just a slight softening of something that had been held, or if it's a sense of um, when, I, when I act in this way, I get this result. So I, I at least understand that. And so that even in that, there's a little bit of relief that we might not have to make that choice as often. So we have to have some kind of a sense of the possibility. And that's what the third noble truth gives us, is the sense that this could stop. And maybe we've even tasted that a little bit. Then we get really excited. That's the really good news. And then there's the fourth noble truth, the truth of the path, is that we still have to work to let go of our tendency to keep doing that. So that first taste might not do it completely. If you're lucky, it does. Sometimes it does. But often what we see is we we feel something released or we have a moment where the fear isn't there or we have a moment where we don't snap in anger when we used to and we say, my goodness, I don't have to do that all the time. I saw one instance where it didn't have to happen and then there's the work of making that our new habit. Our new habit is not to create that suffering. And so that's the, the fourth noble truth is that there's actually still work to be done after we've had that that look. So I used to wonder, as my I have a sort of a logical analytical mind, and I used to wonder, well, why is the fourth noble truth after the third one? Why is the path after cessation? Wouldn't it be that you, you know, you discover the cause and then you do the path and then you're done when you have the cessation? But I've seen from my experience that the order is correct, <laughs> is that you, um, you have that first taste that provides you with a reference point and then you do the work. You know, then you know what you're aiming for. And you do the work of letting go. Um, at least often it goes that way. I won't say absolute for anything. And once, of course, you've had that first taste, um, even, you know, maybe even today in meditation you had a little shift or felt something moving that wasn't moving before, you can no longer totally believe, right? You can no longer totally believe that it's completely solid, immovable, unworkable. You saw it. You saw that something could change. You saw that you had different possibilities for your perspective. So the path is open. You can go forward. Then we still have to do some work to make uh, to make it so that we don't do that anymore. It's also important to remember, I'll just reiterate, I said it earlier, that we're not actually going to do the letting go out of personal will. Um, so it's a little bit of a dance you know we do these practices and the practices are what help us get that glimpse then we might need to supply some more effort but at some point um, the path is unfolding itself you know the path is uh, it's our vision it's our, our 
continued mindfulness that helps the path to keep going. And it's the heart that somehow knows its way toward peace. We're not exactly sure what it's going to be, but we start to trust that the heart can find its way. In the end, it's wisdom that does the letting go, not us. We have to learn to be humble about that. (laughs) Can't really take credit for it. This is from Stephen Batchelor. It's a wonderful quote about the path. As we learn to play this complex instrument of bones, flesh, nerves, impulses, thoughts, and feelings, we trace a path that weaves its way like a channel through the landscape of our experience. It is guided by an intuitive yearning for what we value most deeply. Its space is the openness we are able to tolerate within our hearts and minds. It is sustained by the networks of friendship that inspire us to keep going. The path follows the contours of our life as one day turns into the next. It is found amidst the most mundane of circumstances as well as the most sublime. To create a path is to become intimate with the space opening up within, around, and before us. This intimacy comes from the mindful awareness of what is unfolding in our body, feelings, minds, and worlds from moment to moment. We get used to the taste, the feel, the texture of the path. It ceases to be something to which we self-consciously aspire. When we stray from it, we feel its loss as an act of self-betrayal. So there's a way in which we take in the path and it becomes part of us. It just becomes the way we're walking through our life. And it's it's a skill to learn to walk in that way it sounds very idealistic here but we can we can sense i think some of that even in even if you haven't practiced for very long there's something that pulled your heart toward meditation and toward this day long today and toward this center um what is that and can we can we trust that energy we trust that uh, unleash that energy and let it keep unfolding for us So I think this is this is a good place for me to stop and ask if there are any additional comments or questions today. If you had to sum up maybe what what you'd learned, how would that be for you? Let's do that as a reflection. And then consider if you'd like to like to share anything or ask anything. Yeah. Working, testing. So I just wanted to um, thank you for the day and also for everything you just said because uh, mm-hmm. I 100% agree. Um, I, maybe 20 years ago, stumbled across Zen Keys. Uh, by Thich Nhat Hanh and read that and then read Dwight Goddard's A Buddhist Bible and just was reading all these things in an intellectual way Um, and then became a prolific you know hiker just by myself you know like doing four or five six hour hikes and anyway this is a long way of saying that basically I you know what what you were referring to is what I call the inner Buddha that's in within everybody um, and 
it's just been an amazing process for me to go through and see how the the path was always there and how I was slowly winding my way to finding it and that as long as I continue to nurture my practice um, things that have happened in my life have just been incredible um, with with sustained practice and I've you know I've experimented with Letting you know, letting my practice slip a little bit. Like I, you know, I, I tried to go down to forty-five minutes of meditation a day because I have two kids and a wife, and I found that that actually didn't work, and mm-hmm. I needed an, at least an hour, and it was just subtle, but I could just tell that my reactivity was just a little bit more. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm somebody who used to drink alcohol and eat sugar and had a caffeine addiction, and uh, through meditation and then later through through Dharma, um, those all have gone away, but it is a practice that I have to continually renew, um, mm-hmm. you know, through these daylongs and through you know, my sangha in the city and, and that type of thing. Um, but anyway, everything you said I thought was beautiful, and I, I thank you for your time mm. and your teachings. Thank you. I, I want to highlight the way you said that you kind of can look back and see over the course of a long period of time there is something operating, you know, but what is that? It's not that we, you know, we can't really take credit for it in a sense. Um, I mean, we had to do something, right? But I don't know. I don't know what the larger forces are that are shaping our lives. But I do know that doing these practices is what nourishes uh, the ability for that to come forth, whatever it's going to be. And it's always good, but it might not be what we expected. <laughs> so... I wish you all very well in that. Any, anything else? Yeah, Mark. Um, I wanted to say that I, um, you know, through considering the the suffering and. Um, maybe understanding it's, you know, number one, I'm contributing to it. And, um, and number two, as I look at it, it it may not be as bad as I seem. Um, and, and it did, some things did, I did feel kind of dissolve somewhat. Um, but I I felt some kind of opening to joy, Mm. which often I don't, I don't feel. And that was very nice, um, you know, to to kind of experience a present moment and really kind of understand I'm okay. There's there's really no threat right now that I'm facing. Maybe there's not a problem. Yeah, and I'm going to be okay. Really, whatever you know, whatever confronts me, I I feel I have more. Um, I'm building more strength to be able to face whatever confronts me. The um, the uh, image of the potter's wheel I liked a lot in terms of you know gently holding on to um, any kind of a struggle I, I also thought of the potter's wheel a little bit like it's you know I don't have complete control over the course of my life but I have a little bit and I thought about the potter's wheel in terms of how I how I mold my life or, or at least set conditions for my life so. mm-hmm. Nice. 
Okay, good. Well, um, I have a couple of handouts here if you're interested. They're, um, they're just little teaching teachings. One's an essay and one's a story from the monastery within and one's a teaching from Tanisaro Bhikkhu that just cover topics that are similar to what we talked about today. As I was reading and came across them, I thought, oh, you know, people who did this might be interested in reading this also. So you're welcome to pick those up if they're of interest. And then um, why don't we close by uh, just sitting quietly for a moment and dedicating the merit. So we've done a lot of good work today and we can just wish inwardly that all the goodness and the merit that came from our practice and our study and our sangha connections today, that this be dedicated to the benefit of all beings. So literally in the terms of the people that we're going to see when we leave here on the road and at home or wherever we're going, may they in some way be touched by what has come to us and farther out, rippling to other beings in ways that we can't even see or understand, may our ongoing practice and our commitment to this benefit all beings. May all beings be happy, may all beings be peaceful, and may all beings everywhere find freedom.